I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. So let me announce our topic up front this morning. This morning we're talking about those times when God leads a genuine believer in Christ to step out in faith and do something that maybe they've never done before and before they even understand exactly the implications of what he's asking. When God asks a believer to step out in faith and do something big, I believe this morning some of you are being asked to step out and do something maybe you've never done before, or God's leading you to a new season of life, and you may be a bit terrified. And the question is, how are you going to respond? Uh, the, both history and the Bible are filled with examples of such believers who've done this kind of thing. One of my favorite, <coughs> excuse me, is, uh, and has been for years, is a guy named Raymond Lowell from the, uh, he was a Spanish missionary who was born in 1235 AD. And he was a lot like St. Augustine in his early years. He was, by his own admission, given over to sexual perversion and sexual sin and debauchery and drunkenness and all kinds of stuff and reveled in it all. And then one time, one day, God appeared and sent five visions to him and called him to Christ. And Raymond Lull was gloriously converted, this Spaniard. And uh, even though he had no idea where God was leading him and where Christ was leading him, he submitted. He tried life in a monastery. That didn't work for him. And so he eventually, as he prayed, God led him to become a missionary to Muslims in North Africa, which at the time was a very dangerous thing to do. He wrote these words. I was tolerably rich. I led a secular life. And all of this, I cheerfully resigned for the sake of promoting the common good and spreading abroad the holy faith. So later in life, he learned Arabic. Not easy to learn. He wrote dozens of books and he shared Christ with Muslims for many years. And finally, interestingly, he was martyred at the age of 80 in June of 1315 by stoning to death. Gave his life for Christ. He had no idea where God was leading him, but he knew the living Christ had called him. It's a great lead in this morning to our story about Mary. We're in a series called Christmas Choices. Last week we looked at Joseph, and this week we are going to look at Mary, mother of Jesus, this young girl who becomes the mother of Jesus, a young girl who received a shocking message, I think that's an understatement from God, to her, like Raymond Lull, and chose to believe God before she had really any idea where all of this was leading. And her example, in, in kids and young people especially, because Mary was quite young, we'll get into that in a minute. Likely, all likelihood shows that she was a mid-teenager, maybe. She followed God, and her story is compelling. It is, as you look at it, it is challenging, and it is encouraging. And so I hope this encourages those who know Christ. I know a lot of us here this morning do know Christ. I know some of us here this morning don't know Christ. But may this story from the Holy Scriptures be that compelling story. And we're praying some of us may come to saving faith today in Christ. We're going to dive into these verses. We're going to see three things. First, Mary's surprise. Again, she's very surprised. Then, her surrender. And that's kind of the essence of the sermon this morning, her surrender. And then lastly, <clears throat> Mary's song. And this beautiful, we call it the Magnificat, 
where we see the secret of her ability to surrender. And it's her view of God. Spoiler alert. This woman had quite a view of God. So let's dive in. First of all, Mary's surprise. And then let's unpack the text a bit as we do that. I'm going to pick up the story. Verse 26, Luke's gospel, gospel according to Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in the Galilee. Galilee means the district. It was a, it's a region up north, still is up north, and is viewed back then as kind of a hillbilly land. And, he, so, and the Holy Spirit came to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. A couple observations. First of all, the word for virgin is the Greek word in its nominative form, parthenos, or here parthenon. If you're familiar, obviously, with Greece or Athens, you know up on the Acropolis, there is what? The Parthenon, named after the Greek goddess Athena, who was the virgin goddess. That's the word Parthenon. Most people are very familiar with that today in Western culture. This is the word here. And it's used again in verse 27. It comes from the Greek. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek in the first century and referred to somebody who did not yet have sexual relations. That's Secondly, verse 27 tells us Mary was pledged to be married. She's in the betrothal phase. We explained that last week to a young man named Joseph. And uh, in this betrothal phase, which took place usually right after puberty, especially for the, for the girl, for the woman, Mary was likely uh, a young teenager. In fact, probably one of the most magisterial books written on the birth of Christ from an academic perspective was from a New Testament scholar, Raymond Brown, Roman Catholic scholar, New Testament scholar. And he, diving into all of this and looking at all the evidence culturally, historically, says there's pretty good likelihood Mary would have been somewhere around 12 to 14 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. Now, needless to say, the angel's message is shocking. Uh, if an angel appeared to us in any form, probably all, anything it said would be shocking to most of us. But here's the surprise. The surprise is that Mary is to become pregnant without having sexual relations. And this is going to be a special child. We're given the identity of the child starting in verse 31 through verse 33. So we'll just keep following the text. And what an identity it is. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. I love the last phrase. His kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never end. This is what, we, what scholars call a passage that has a very high Christology. In other words, a very high doctrine of Christ. Here he's clearly not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He is the exalted divine son of God. And as we learn even more so in John's gospel, he is God incarnate in human flesh. That will come out through our series in John this coming year. So just to make the point here, 
it, we talk about a virgin birth. J. Gresham Machen years ago wrote the classic, The Virgin Birth of Christ. Uh, but it's really more of a virgin conception. I mean, that's really the miracle here is a virgin conception. Now notice verse 28. If you look at verse 28 in the NIV, the answer, it said the angel went to her and said, greetings you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I grew up on the King James version and the King James hail thou art highly favored. Blessed art thou among women. And based on this verse, interestingly, on December 8th, 1854, Pope Pius IX declared that Mary was conceived without sin. Not that Jesus was not sin, but that Mary was conceived without sin. Problem is, the Bible doesn't teach that. That was invented. <laughs> Mary was a sinful person. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates she's any different than the rest of us. But having said that, Protestants quickly too quickly, I think, toss out a lot of this and don't honor her. She's to be blessed. It says right in the Magnificat, she will be called blessed. And so I, I think, even as a Protestant, and I'm Protestant through and through, that the title of Blessed Virgin Mary is a very honoring title and is not a bad title. And that Protestants are very, too quickly, just ready to throw everything out. And because we recoil sometimes at the Mariology, inappropriate high, high Mariology of the Catholic Church. But Mary is to be blessed. And we're going to even see more of that as we go on. As far as Mary herself, we're talking about a simple peasant girl from backwards, rural, gritty, nitty-gritty uh, village in ancient Palestine. We were in Nazareth this last year in May. Nazareth today is a large Arab Muslim city. It's the largest Arab Muslim city inside the state of Israel, not in the Palestinian territories. So inside the state of Israel is almost predominantly Muslim today. But Mary likely was, did not have formal education like a boy would. She was likely illiterate, most obviously very poor, and would have been viewed by virtually anyone else from Israel as a hillbilly. In other words, she qualified as a nobody in almost every sense of the word. A nobody from a nothing village in the middle of nowhere. And yet, that is who God chose as the human mother of his son. The greatest news in Israel proclaimed to one of the humblest nobodies imaginable. And it's a great illustration that God often, not always, but often in the biblical record bypasses the talented, the wealthy and famous, and instead often, even like with David, picking David as the next king of Israel, often goes for and uses the ordinary, the mundane, and the nobodies of the world. Paul mentions that in, in 1 Corinthians. And the question is why? And we're never given a verse like exactly why, but there are strong indications in the Bible. Number one, nobodies are quite on. They're often available. <laughs> they don't have a lot going on. And so God can, you know, a lot of the rest of us are busy and nobodies often aren't. Secondly, they're less prone to brag and steal the limelight from God, quite honestly. And thirdly, they provide an arena for God to display his glory. Now, that doesn't mean that every nobody is a, is a God-centered person. That's not the point. The point is that God often goes this direction, first and foremost, because he gains glory in whatever he does, and he deems that he often will gain more glory by using somebody like this. Now, next we come to the essence of this, and that's Mary's surrender. Verses 35 through verse 45. I'm going to read verse 35 through 38. So, by the way, Mary asked this question, and it's not a question of unbelief in verse 34. 
It's a question of just biological wondering. She, Mary asked the angel, uh, uh, you know, how's this going to be? I'm a virgin. So that's not a, that's not a statement of unbelief. Because, and we know that because she is blessed for her faith here very shortly. So verse 35 to 38. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. By the way, just an observation in verse 35. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned there. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned in verse 35. Scholars have pointed that out. You got the Father is mentioned, the Most High. You got the Holy Spirit mentioned, and the Son of God is mentioned. You already have early on in one of the gospel narratives, Trinitarian theology starting to come out explicitly. So Mary knew what would happen. She didn't know exactly how it would happen. Verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. I mean, in verse 36, she's told that her relative Elizabeth is going to have a child. This was John the Baptist. She who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. No word of God will fail. And then verse 38 is key. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now, very interesting. We live in the modern West, and this is a day of casual sex and sexual expression and all the other sexual revolution. Look at to be a young pregnant teenager, unwed, in a tiny rural village in ancient Palestine. The word scandal hardly <laughs> makes the point. This would have been scandalous and a ginormous mess for her. Everything would be teetering in her life. Community respect would be gone. Respect from her family would be gone. Respect from Joseph would be gone. She had absolutely everything to lose humanly and nothing to gain by this whole thing. And yet she says, okay, whatever you have said. Now, then Gabriel informs Mary of how this would happen. Again, verse 38, when Mary says, I'm going to be the Lord's servant, may your word be fulfilled. The angel then left her. The angel explained. And verse 38, ladies and gentlemen, young people, I believe is really the key to this next section because her surrender is pivotal. She, here's the phrase I want to use, took God at his word. That's the phrase I want to kind of throw out to embed in your brain this morning and in your heart. She took God at his word. And I'm just going to ask pastorally this morning, are you taking God at his word? What could God be asking you to do right now? What season of life might God be leading you into right now? What crazy thing might he be asking you to do or endure right now? And are you taking him at his word? That's the, that, that is really the essence of this this morning. She took him at his word. Verse 39 and following. Notice, by the way, that the child in her womb is called a baby. It's because it is a baby. The Bible teaches human life begins at conception. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home. That was Elizabeth's husband. And greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb... Leaped, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, speaking of Mary, and blessed is the child you will bear. Also look at verse 45. This is repeated. Blessed is she, this is Elizabeth again talking about Mary, who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. 
Can it be said of me? Can it be said of you this morning? You are taking God at his word. And let me suggest the very first step of taking God at his word is believing what he says about our status before him, which is we are sinners from the moment of conception. We're sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, and we need to be saved. The whole gospel story is about the fact that we're sinners who need a savior. And that the only way that can happen is by repenting and trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the gospel story. That's the plan of salvation. That's the first step of taking God at his word. If you have done that, then God throughout our lives leads us into different seasons. Sometimes seasons of blessing. Sometimes seasons of loss. Sometimes seasons of, what's this? (laughs) Don't have any idea. Are you taking God this morning? I'm asking you quietly at his word. Young people, are you taking God at his word? Seniors, are you taking God at his word? Kids, wherever he might be leading, whatever crazy thing he might be asking of you through his word, are you taking him at his word? That's key. Now, what's so sobering here, and this never an accident in scripture where two things are put back to back to show a contrast, is Mary's response to that of Zechariah's response. Some of you know this, some of you do not but it's worth showing and reminding ourselves. So if you back up to verse 11 in the Gospel of Luke, Zechariah, and Mary's related to his wife, Elizabeth. Zechariah is the opposite of Mary. He lives in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been seen as urban and sophisticated compared to Nazareth. He is highly educated. He is a priest. And he, of all people, should have known his Hebrew Bible and believed God. And early in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah to announce a message from God for him. So Mary gets a message, Zechariah gets a message, but his response is very different, and he is disciplined by God. Why? He didn't take God at his word. Verse 11 to 14. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, Gabriel, by the way, Gabriel is only one of the few angels in the Bible named uh, Michael's name, Gabriel's name, Lucifer's name. But most of the angels in the Bible are not named. He was startled and was gripped with fear. Interesting, in the Bible, Apostle John had the same experience. When an angel appeared to him, he was fearful. Mary was fearful. Zechariah is fearful. That's one of the first responses of any human being in the Bible who's encountering an angel is they fear. And then they often hear, don't fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. So this is a righteous man. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You're to call him John. This is John the Baptist's parents. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. And yet, drop down to verses 18 to 20. Zechariah, young people, please hear this. Zechariah hesitated to believe what God had said. Adults, kids, He did not take God at his word. Even though this is a man who was a priest, he loved the Lord, he clearly is a righteous man. For some reason, he hesitated. Here, verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? This is a different kind of question than Mary asked. This is a doubting of the word of God. And we know that because the divine text tells us here. I'm an old man, my wife is well along in years. He didn't believe what God had told him. The angel said, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because, because why? Because you did not believe my words. 
which will come true at their appointed time. What's the lesson? Hear it carefully. Taking God at his word is a big deal to God. And so it should be a big deal to us. Especially when he's leading us somewhere. Clearly through scripture. Clearly through wise counsel. Clearly through prayer and fasting. He's opening up a new door. Or a new chapter of life. It could be a season of blessing. It could be a season of grieving. It could be a season of loss. It could be a season of of moving. A season of financial adjustment. Or changes to our health. Or whatever. But he's clearly moving us in a direction. And the the question is. Are we going to take him at his word? Are we going to believe his promises? And And the lesson here is. God expects his people. He expects me to take him at his word. And taking him at his word is a big deal to him. And the lesson here is not an accident. that These two stories are back to back. That brings us to Mary's song. And here is, get the, this is where we see why she responded the way she did. I said she probably did not have a formal education, but this woman, this young girl, she knew the scriptures. And that comes out clearly. Her view of God is massive. She had a huge view of a sovereign God. So as we come to this narrative, the real story of her ability to surrender so completely comes out. It's called, historically, the Magnificat. That comes from the Latin Vulgate translation. And it comes simply from verse 46, where it says that my soul magnifies the Lord. So in Latin, Magnificat, it's her song. One of two songs in Luke. And it's a magnificent song. And what does it reveal? It reveals a gutsy brave, uh, courageous young teenager who trusted God and took him at his word. And I love that the Holy Spirit put this in here because the theology that comes out of this is absolutely incredible and an encouragement. So I'm going to read it in its entirety, verses 46 down through verse, ends in 55, and then I'll close with verse 56. But here is the song of Mary, her Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies or glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Just as I read this, keep thinking, what does Mary believe about her God? For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. That's why I, even as a Protestant, I believe it's appropriate to call her the blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, she is a blessed young lady here. She... Because she took God at his word. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. But has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, the real story of Mary's surrender here is in her view of who God is. And that should fire up young people. That should fire up teenagers and kids. Talk about a rock-solid teenager with her head on straight who knew the Bible. You look at these verses, like verse 47. She rejoices in God and realizes, even at a young age, he's the only real source for joy. How many could avoid shipwrecking their lives if they grasped that in their teenage years? Verse 49 and 50. 
Mary rejoices in God for his might and his mercy. Verses 40, uh, 52 to 55, she expresses faith in a God who is in charge of history and sovereign over the... I love verse 52, who brings rulers down. She, this woman knew the Hebrew Bible. She knew the redemptive story. She knew history. And it's all the more powerful, by the way, when you consider that her words could easily have been seen as critical of the reigning King Herod who had no compunction to kill people very quickly. And yet, she said, bottom line is this. This is not a story about Mary, really. And it's not even really a story about Mary's faith. You know what this is a story about? This is a story about Mary's God and her faith in the biblical God. And Mary's surrender to God is no surprise when you understand her view of God. And it's one reason why theology is so important. Theology gets a bad name. I hear people go, oh, I don't like theology. Look it. It's simply two Greek words. Theos, God. Logos, which you can translate many different ways. Reason, logic, study of. Word. It's the study of God. And let me, this, let us be clear. There is nothing more important in this life than an accurate knowledge of who God is. Second only is the knowledge of who we are, that we're sinners who need a Savior. But your doctrine of God, your view of God, your worldview, your understanding of who God is or is not affects absolutely everything in your life and in my life. It affects our finances, our sex life, our parenting, our vocation, our recreation, how we view our health and our everything. Absolutely everything is impacted by how I understand who God is and respond to it. That's why this story so powerful. It's been said that those who are tired of theology are tired of life, for theology is the stuff of life. Mary's vision of God is, is, is a big one, and we need it. I need it. It's the same vision that Raymond Lowell had. It's the kind of vision of God, let me get real practical here, we need if we're going to trust God when he's leading us into a new chapter, a new season of life. Uncharted waters. It's the kind of vision of God, her big vision of God, that kids and teens need to resist peer pressure and go against the tribe. It's the kind of vision that couples need to help affair-proof their marriage and protect it. It's the kind of vision sinners need if they're going to flee the wrath of God to come and find Christ as Savior. It's the kind of big vision of God believers need if they're going to suffer well and endure well. And handle rejection well. It's the kind of big vision of God we need if we're really going to be able to forgive people and not just sink into a pit of bitterness. And it's the kind of vision of God we, that older saints especially need as we age. There's just such a propensity for aging saints to just have a trail, a collection of grievances and, and that, that follows them. And it's tragic. We need a big vision of God. We need Mary's vision of God. And that is why, to me, this story ultimately isn't about Mary, really not about Mary's faith. It's about Mary's God and what he led her to do. All right, I've been hinting at a number of summons in this passage. Let me pull out three must, M-U-S-T-S, that clearly come screaming out of this section of the Bible. Number one, we must believe what God says about our sin and our need for a Savior. Frankly, that's why the gospel is so offensive to so many people, because it says they're a sinner, and they need a Savior. But the Bible doesn't hesitate and doesn't shrink back from declaring that. It says the gospel is that God sent His Son 
to reconcile sinners to himself. And that only those who repent, turn from their sin and grieve over it and follow Christ will be saved. Paul said it very clearly in Romans 10, 9, a verse we love to quote. If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. Yeah, notice there's not a lot of do in that verse. Not a lot of do this, do that, do this, do that. We say over and over and over again around here. Religion is spelled D-O, do, go do stuff. Gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. Our response then is, are we going to surrender and submit? And frankly, the issue for most people is authority. They don't like authority. And they don't want anyone else telling them what to do. Second must that comes out of here this morning, we must spend regular time in the Bible. So for those who truly know the Savior this morning, how's your Bible time? Are you spending time in the script? I know I'm speaking to some who are. A lot of us here have very rich devotional life, but I also know I'm speaking to some who are not. Haven't cracked the Bible in a long time. It's important that we are in the scriptures. It's important we are carving out regular time during the week to be in the scriptures, to sit under biblical preaching, to have our children sit under biblical preaching, to be reading our Bibles. And dads, it is important at the dinner table or the breakfast table or somewhere table that you are opening the scriptures for your children. These are the words of God filled with the power of God to do the work of God. And our families need this. And as a dad, if you have kids, you are charged with opening the book. My kids always joked with me because when I would open it, we, were, we had a lot of laughter at our dinner table on a regular basis. I would get the eyeball from Becky once in a while, like, you're acting like one of them. Okay. But when I did finally open the book and the kids, I hadn't got them amped down yet, I would say, the book is open. And to this day, my adult children sometimes smile and joke with me like, the book's open, Dad. I said, I know. That was my phrase, because when we open the book, we need to listen. And if you are a dad, and if you have kids at home, make sure you are the priest for your family. You are shepherding your family. You are reading the scriptures and teaching your kids their need to read the scriptures. It is tragic how many professing I use that word carefully, Christians, hardly spend any time in the Bible. Years ago, Charles Spurgeon, who pastored the largest church on planet Earth 150 years ago in London, he preached a sermon in 1857 on the Bible. And he has a phrase in that sermon that's just one of Charlie's more pointed phrases. And it was this, as he was challenging his flock of 6,000 to make sure they were reading their Bibles. He said, quote, there is enough dust on some of your Bibles to write the word damnation with your fingers. <laughs> oh. Say it, Chuck. Have you opened your Bible? Are you in your Bible? Third must and final must here this morning. Once again, we must believe and obey God's word. What separates Mary and Zechariah, they both knew God. Zechariah was a priest. He seems to be a very righteous man, but for some reason, he hesitated. And Mary believed and obeyed. And the question this morning is, if you claim to know Christ as Savior, are you taking God at his word? Are you obeying him? Are you following him without whining and complaining and murmuring and hesitating and dragging your feet into the next chapter of life? He's opening. For some of you, it may be a dream that he's finally opened up. Or a new chapter of life. He may be calling some of you to the mission field. Who knows? 
He may be calling you to a season of blessing. He may be calling you to a season of suffering. Are you ready to follow God and take him at his word? 1 John 2, 4 speaks to me as every bit as much speaks to you. Whoever claims to know Christ, but does not keep his commands is a liar. Now here, I want to end on a very encouraging note because as I was reading Oswald Chambers this week, I've been reading his, my, his utmost from the highest, my highest for his utmost this year. Um, this week, December 14th, I came across a reminder. It was really encouraging that peace is the promised outcome of those who take God at his word and obedience. And it was just, I'm going to read the quote here. God's mark of approval whenever you obey him is peace. Peace. He sends an immeasurable, deep peace. Not a natural peace as the world gives. There is a superficial peace the world gives. But the peace of Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, I go back to it over and over again over the decades. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. And I ask you this morning, how's your peace quotient? If you claim to know Jesus, would you say you're peaceful? Do you have the peace of Christ? Not peace with God, that's vertical. The peace of God, that's horizontal. Do you have the peace of God ruling? And so I close with this wonderful promise. Psalm 8411. I love this. No good thing. No good thing does God withhold from those whose walk is upright. No good thing does God withhold from those whose walk is upright. That is God's promise. Holy Father, thank you for the story of Mary. Father, it will be a delight someday to meet this woman on the new earth and get to know the human mother of Jesus. We thank you for her life. We thank you for her faith. And we thank you for her view of who you are. We thank you for the blessed Virgin Mary. Sinful, born like the rest of us, sinful, but a woman who trusted in the Messiah, gave birth to the Messiah, mothered the Messiah, had to watch her son die and rise from the dead. We give you thanks for her this morning in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.